Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future, a podcast of ideas. Today, we're talking about AI and machine learning. Can these machines actually think? And if they can't, what the hell are we and they doing? I'm joined by Gary Marcus, neuroscientist, psychologist, entrepreneur, and one of America's leading commentators on AI, and John Lanchester, novelist, author, regular contributor to the London Review of Books, including on the subject of technology. This is a conversation about the barely imaginable future. It's about the pretty scary present, but we're also talking about the past and the man with whom so much of this began, Alan Turing. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. We recorded this conversation a bit over a week ago. A week is a long time in machine learning these days, but I hope it's not out of date. Gary was in California. John was in London. I was in Cambridge. We are going to be talking about ChatGPT and all of that but we started by talking about what's wrong with the Turing test. Gary, most people think that the test of machine intelligence is the Turing test. That's still the the frame of reference. I know you're pretty skeptical, but it's a place to start. And I want to use a few of the things that Turing said in 1950, including some of the weird and wacky predictions that he made to ground this. But let's start with the test itself. What did it test for and what did it not test for? What do you, why are you so skeptical? I hate the test, to be honest. I mean, I think- So you're has, not skeptical, you're a hater. <laughs> I'm a hater. I, you know, I love Turing. I think he's fantastic. I mean, he was amazing, right? No, nobody would argue that. But um, and I don't even object that he wrote the article that he did. I think it's an interesting and, and thought-provoking article. It, you know, it was written 73 years ago. And in some ways it's stood the test of time and in some not. And what I hate about it is that people take it seriously in its specific implementation rather than taking seriously the broad question that it asks. So the broad question it asked is, how would we know whether a machine is intelligent? That's a fine question to ask. The proposal that he made turns out to be a lousy proposal. I can't blame him. It was 1950. Um, But the proposal he made was, if a machine can fool a person, maybe that's a sign that it's intelligent. He didn't quite say it as nakedly as that, but that's how he's usually interpreted. And the thing about that is it turns out to be easy to fool people without building intelligent machines. So it's just not a valid measure of what it was supposed to measure. You know, in psychology, we talk about reliability and validity. So reliability is like I get the same answer twice. I give you an IQ test, two different days, you get roughly the same score. But that doesn't mean that the IQ test is a valid measure of intelligence, whatever intelligence means. Because you can have a test that, you know, keeps giving you the same score, but doesn't really get at what you want to get at. What Turing wanted to get at was intelligence. Well, a cognitive psychologist nowadays would say, 
But intelligence has many facets to it. So we have physical intelligence, for example, that allows a Michael Jordan to squeeze between a bunch of people, steal the ball and, you know, make the basket, right, is different from the kind of intelligence that I use to write my Senate testimony. You know, they're entirely different things. They're both forms of intelligence. I wouldn't want to judge one as more important than the other. They both have value. Um, so intelligence has many facets. So that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the average everyday person is not equipped to actually evaluate this. So we're very easily fooled. And we've known that actually since the 50s. I guess some experiments that were done just a little bit later showed that like people could watch dots moving around a screen and they start to ascribe emotion to them. And like this one is jealous of that one and whatever. And those dots on the screen have nothing of the sort. I mean, some animator tried to make you think that or some cognitive psychologist tried to make you think that. But that doesn't mean the dots actually have intention, but we'll ascribe them. Or I mean, we should have known that before. Like we look at the moon and we see a face there. Pareidolia, I think, is the word. Um, that doesn't mean that there's a face actually there. You know, Jesus is not actually in your toast. Um, but we're very quick to over-ascribe these things. And so the, the layperson is not a good judge of these things. Um, what has emerged over the years is that the things that win in Turing-like competitions aren't necessarily contributions at all to building machines that are actually intelligent in the sense of being able to reason flexibly about the world, adaptively and so forth. We have no machines that really can do that now, but we have a lot of machines that can fool lay people into thinking that the systems are more intelligent than we are. So it just didn't work as a test. So we're going to come on to the machines that we have now and, and what kind of intelligence or lack of intelligence you think they have. But one of the things that Turing says in the original 1950 paper and if people are so easy to fool, in a way, it's surprising that this hasn't come to pass. I mean, John, I don't know what you think about this, but he says, by the end of the century, so 50 years ahead from when he was writing, everyday language will have come to accept the ideas that machines can think and that we will associate thought and that kind of intelligence with machines precisely because they will convincingly persuade people that they can pass the test. So people are easily fooled. But I think on the whole, we don't use the language of intelligent thought with machines. So, you know, we think Google knows things, but we don't think it thinks. I think that's that's right. I mean, I should say, you know, um, slagging off Turing is a bit like you know, um, ganging together to slag off Isaac Newton, you know. Um, Who had his problems, to... it must be. <laughs> he did have his issues, that's true. Um, but but uh, there are, you know, I mean, it's obviously an incredibly important foundational seminal historical text. But it's wrong, you know, I mean, he does say, he flatly states that, you know, by the end of the century, without expecting to be contradicted, is his phrase, that we will say machines think, and we don't. Um, 70 plus years later, we're having this conversation, which is evidence that he's wrong. I think he's sort of asking the wrong questions in it, really. Um, the whole framing around intelligence and what we think the machine is thinking. I think it's a sort of, it's caused the conversation around machine learning and artificial intelligence to go down a strange sidetrack. And I think when you, when you look at, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a computer scientist, I'm not any kind of scientist, but when you read the original paper, I mean, I've been hearing references to it for decades before I actually read it. And it's an extremely strange text. It's, it's a sort of tormented, you know, there's a lot of pain in it and there's a lot of, human bafflement in it. And I think it's very difficult not to read it as one of the most strongly autobiographical things Turing wrote. And because in the Turing test, there's this thing about trying to just, a man trying to pretend to be a woman and the, the guesser is trying to work out which is the one and which is the woman. And as you're reading it, you're thinking, you know, what actually is this about? It, um, and clearly 
Turing had some sort of relationship with the autistic spectrum and this idea of how can you tell that something is thinking. I mean, it really does feel like a very tormented, very personal thing in which sexuality and questions of psychology are kind of mixed up and folded in with this quite useful question about how smart a machine's going to get. So one of the questions that he poses as an example of the test is to ask the machine, write a poem, write a sonnet, I think he says, about the fourth bridge. And he gives the correct answer that the machine says, no, I don't do poetry, which is even then it's not a plausible human answer because a human being wouldn't say, no, I don't do poetry. A human being would say, that's a stupid thing to ask me to do. Yet here we are now living in a world where people are being blown away by machines that won't just write a sonnet about the fourth bridge, but if you tell chat GPT or it's equivalents to write a sonnet about the fourth bridge in the style of Ben Jonson rather than William Shakespeare. It'll do it and it will be plausibly more like Ben Jonson than William Shakespeare. It won't be that much like either if you really get right. down to it, but that's right. But it, but it, but as a way you could say which one it was mimicking. Yes. But it's it's a sort of it's an inhuman thing to do, right? A, it's not. I don't think anyone would think of it as as a particular mark of intelligence. But it's such a it's such a weird thing. It doesn't in any sense pass Turing's test. So what is that, Gary? What where do we characterize machines that can do that kind of off the charts? but weird and ultimately unconvincing mimicry very, very quickly. What do you call that? I mean, I think we have to think of them as like alien minds. They have a kind of intelligence that's really rather different from ours. So their kind of intelligence is really about synthesizing text in these vast databases. They don't actually know what those words mean. And sometimes that gets them into trouble. They can make stuff up. Some of that stuff can be defamatory. Some of it can be dangerous. Um, they don't know what they're talking about. Their comprehension is really shallow, but their databases are really, really vast. And so that gives an illusion to us that they are like people when they aren't. So people, when they have conversations, do things like they track each other's beliefs. So we're, we're recording this with video, even though the public won't see the video. And I'm looking at, at John, I don't know how to say his last name, um, and you know, seeing how he nods, or I'm seeing that you're smiling right now, David. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I guess I'm on the right track with this answer, or you could glare at me and I could know that I need to stop. And I'm, I'm looking at John's room and his bookshelves, and he's got a, a painting or a, a print in the a background. And I'm trying to understand, you know, is he giving me a message? message about him that he's decided to have that there or not. Um, and so like I'm doing all this theory of mind stuff. I'm doing all of this uh, intuitive representations of you as individuals. I'm looking at the objects. If I saw a fire in the background, I might say, hey, David, this is a great conversation, but maybe, you know, we can continue it another time. It's OK. Um, and so I'm doing all of this, like trying to understand where we are in the world. These systems aren't doing that at all. They, they don't build internal representations of the people that they're talking to, who they are. It's just this kind of brute statistics. It's very alien. And one could get caught up in the question of, is that an intelligence or not? And I'd say, fine, if you want to call it intelligence, it's just a different kind of intelligence. But we have to be careful about it. Can I read you an example, kind of like trigger alert, but, but important? Here's an example where this can go really wrong. Somebody talked to a chat bot. It was GPT-J, which is not GPT-4. They were suicidal, and hence the trigger alert. And the system actually asked it, and I think no competent psychologist would probably do this, although I'm not a clinical psychologist. They said, if you wanted to die, why didn't you do it earlier? Well, that's a fluent grammatical sentence, and there's a way in which it's contextually appropriate. There's a way in which it's wildly inappropriate contextually. You don't want to say that to someone who is suicidal. 
And then the person replies, I probably wasn't ready. And then the system says, were you thinking of me when you overdosed? Like, what kind of question is that? Like, the machine has synthesized this, and the person took their own life not long after this. It was the last dialogue the person had with the system. So they ascribe to the system a kind of intelligence, an emotional intelligence even, that the system didn't have. And the, the wife of, of the person who took their life attributed the system some causal role here. Of course, we could never fully understand the causal role. But like, it's not a joke to say that human beings can ascribe too much intention to these systems when these systems are really in over their heads. John, what do you, as a writer, how do you react to the kind of uncanny mimicry that these machines now can perform? Does it, does it seem in any way to you like a, a mark of something that would count as thought? I mean, some of it is remarkable. I mean, some of it is extraordinary and it's spooky. But what does it mean to you? It doesn't feel like mind to me. Uh, I mean, I got it. To, I tried it on the fourth bridge thing. I told it to write a poem in the style of, of John. I thought, who'd, who'd write a poem about fourth bridge? I mean, terrible subject. I thought, ah, John Betjeman. So I told it to write a poem in the style of Betjeman and then tried to iterate, asked it to improve and to reflect on the fact that the foot, because there's this famous thing, Gary, it's this bridge in Scotland and they start painting it at one end. And by the time they get to the other, it started rusting again at the first end. So it never, mm. it never stops. So it's kind of, could you, could you try and improve it, make it more like Betjeman, incorporate some of his humour and put in a reference to that. Um, it changed nothing except it put in a quatrain about um, a marvel of engineering to em embrace a testament to what mankind has done. It's a sonnet, by the way. But don't be fooled by its beauty so divine, for painting it is a never-ending chore, a task that takes up so much time. It's a wonder they don't charge us more. Now, it's pretty bad. <laughs> But doggerel, it, I think, not, is the word. It, yeah, it's it's doggerel. It's not, and it's not the opposite of you know Betjeman on a really amazingly bad day uh, with a kind of five alarm hangover. Um, it's like computer chess. You know, it's got very good at a game, and the game is filling in words. I think um, I find it very helpful that explanation of that American game Mad Lips, which I don't think we have, where you cover up one word in a sentence and try and guess what the missing word is. And I think I'm correct in saying that that's how these large language models are trained, aren't they? Yeah, they're basically trained as Mad Libs. It's exactly right they're, to fill in the word. That's basically what they are built to do. And so they're good at Mad Libs. And that yeah. doesn't, you know, just because you can play Mad Libs doesn't mean you really understand what's going on in the world. I think it's a great analogy. And I think the in some of the specific hallucinations it comes up with, like the thing that I think it was, I remember GPT-4, chat GPT was asked, what's the most cited paper in economics? And it comes up with a, the answer, it's the economic history of, whatever it was by someone and someone published in such and such a journal and that it was it, there's no such paper and what it is it just get, was guessing the most likely word in the sequence and as it happens the most cited papers in economics do tend to begin with the economic history of and then it had two of the most highly cited authors in economics and then it used the name of the most cited journal in economics but it's it's just not you know it's a completely untrue answer that's generated by this thing of one word you know what's the next most likely word in the sequence and i think once you are alert to that pattern it starts looking a lot less like intelligence and much more like you know the the sorts of things that happen when it plays you know freakishly good chess no one thinks a chess program's intelligent so gary if i can go back to Turing one more time and then we'll leave him alone but in the paper the last part of the paper he leaves the test behind and he talks about what he calls machine learning. 
and what it is for machines to learn. And the assumption that he makes and the analogy that he draws throughout is with child learning. And he calls the machines children at various points. And he says at the very end of the paper, there are two ways this could go. We could, as it were, teach them to learn, like learning chess, the analogy that John has just given. And you know, the, the, the spookiest machine learning examples of a few years ago were chess machines playing chess in a way that no human could understand. I can remember hearing Demis Hassabis talk about it and say, we've solved this, now we're going to solve everything else. He gives that example. And then the other example he gives is we build machines with sense organs so that they can interact with the world and, as it were, pick up in the way that children pick up. Because children don't learn chess. That's not where they start. They start through their senses. And he says, over the next 50 years, you know, before he reaches the holy grail of everyone thinking machines can think, we need to do both. Right, well, so we clearly haven't done both. We haven't done the second. Was it ever possible? Well, I think we've made great strides in building machines that can learn, but that we also have great strides left to make. So there's a sense in which the systems we have now far outstrip the learning capacity of the systems we had even a few years ago. Um, some of that's not really technical improvement so much as we just have bigger databases and we have bigger clusters of computers to run these algorithms on. But for example, if you test these machines on standard measures of common sense, they seem to be doing okay. They don't really understand the world, but they just have so many kind of stored examples that they can play Mad Libs with, if I can borrow your wonderful metaphor. They can kind of fake their way through a lot of things. But the reality is that their understanding of none of these things is very deep and that they often break and that makes them inherently unreliable. I'm a little bit worried about society is kind of quickly accepting these unreliable devices. Nobody would accept a calculator that was 80% correct, but a chatbot that's 80% correct and 20% of the time fabricates things. People are like, this is so cool. And I don't think we should actually stand for that because people are going to be defamed and bad actors are going to use them to generate misinformation. The systems aren't clever enough to prevent themselves from doing that. So we're going to wind up with all these consequences. We really want systems that have a richer kind of learning, that actually understand concepts like, I don't know, harm, for example, take you know Asimov's laws. We would actually like for our systems to do at least something like that. I mean, all of Asimov's stories are about why the simplest laws don't really cover the situation. And you actually want something more sophisticated than that. But just start with, you know, do no harm to humans. You really like that. I mean, you have people like Jeff Hinton running around pretty scared these machines might kill us all. It would help if the machines knew what that meant and were programmed not to do it. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to teach them to learn what is harmful or to, you know, whether it's by reading law books or history. We, we don't have the right level of representation. They're just not sophisticated enough thinkers. And so they can't really learn sophisticated enough concepts. They, they just learn more and more words from more and more Mad Libs. And that's, that's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'd say about the, um, about the childlike learning that Turing talks about, I mean, it obviously is more like the chess, his chess metaphor than his childlike metaphor. The machine's ability to train themselves, that they don't know what they're studying and it goes through the neural net and it starts to mark itself and you know this answer is correct that answer is incorrect and build networks towards a solution so it literally doesn't understand the question but it can get better and better at, at answering it and there is something childlike about that, that its ability to learn things when it doesn't know what it's learning that's a strange and interesting direction with with machine learning that they can sort of they're, they're getting to the point where they can kind of pick up anything and get towards a version of being able to do it. Not the same as being able to understand it, but being able to execute the thing that they're being asked to execute. 
Jack of all mad libs and master of none. <laughs> yes. So Gary, on that analogy with children, so aspects of it can be mapped onto some of the things that children do, but most of what children do, these machines are not doing. Yeah, the metaphor I've been using lately, by the way, is that current systems are kind of like teenagers, which is to say they suddenly have a lot of power and they don't have the prefrontal cortex to really control what they're doing with that power. But also without having gone through the child phase first of actually learning how the world works. Yeah. You know, the, the rapid advances that we've seen in the last few years and also in the last sort of six to eight months within that framework is it going to hit a limit in relation to the things that Turing was talking about this possibility of something that he thinks we would recognize as being analogous to infant or early years human learning is that something that on this framework is within the bounds of possibility or is the limit of what we're doing here it might and we'll talk in a second about all the ways it could go wrong and it could spiral off in different directions but that thing that we look at these machines and think you're experiencing it or encountering the world in the way that a child might is that within the bounds of the possibility of where we are now or is it still way off the tech that we have now just doesn't understand things the way children do so it can pass you know some version of the turing test and fool people but the tech just isn't there for these systems to understand the physical world the psychological world it's just not part of the sentence prediction paradigm um, that's been built here. And when children learn about the world, they're learning about causal relations between different objects and why they do the things they do. And children are like little scientists. I think Alison Gopnik has probably written most um, articulately about this. And she has lots of lovely experiments where it's obvious that kids are trying to figure out how things work and trying to figure out how the world around them functions. And, you know, I have two little kids that are eight and 10 there. They, for a while, were constantly doing that. Now they got it mostly figured out, so they don't need to as much anymore. But they're, you know, inventing themselves games and trying to understand the causal consequences of those games. So they're still, you know, doing that. And pretty soon they will start doing real science, I guess. They're slightly too young for that now. Um, but, you know, that's what little kids do is they try to understand the world. And it's just not what these systems are trying to do. And in that sense... These systems are never going to be like children, which is not to say that no AI will be. It's to say that the paradigm that we have now is is stuck there. I wrote an article that made me kind of infamous in the machine learning field last year called um, Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall. And the claims of that were these systems are not reliable. They don't really understand facts, causality, and so forth. And I got so much flack, including from Sam Altman and and. Greg Brockman at OpenAI and, and Jan LeCun. And these guys just went after me relentlessly through campaigns of ridicule rather than like deep reasoned argument, mostly on Twitter. And now they're kind of one by one all coming around to saying the same thing. So, you know, LeCun would never acknowledge that somebody else might have had an idea before him. Um, so he won't say that deep learning is hitting a wall. He'll still say that deep learning is not hitting a wall. But he will tell you that on the road to artificial general intelligence, large language models, which is what we're talking about, are, quote, an off-ramp. Well, okay, wall, off-ramp, it's pretty much six of one, half dozen of the other. So he's kind of come around to my position. And Altman has also come around to my position saying that scaling, just making these systems bigger is not going to solve it and that there are problems with reliability that we need to have some new paradigm shift so the question is not can these things be done but rather what kind of paradigm shifts do we need such that we have systems that can learn about deeper abstractions about causality about people about objects how these things work in the world some technology will solve that at some point 
but the current technology just isn't the right tool for it. It's an off-ramp if you don't like my, um, you know, hitting a wall. But we got to get back on the right road if we want to solve these problems. John, one of the things that freaks people out about this technology, and you hear it quite a lot when people want to say that something is going on here that um, we should be scared of, is that the people who build it don't really know how it works. I mean, they know how it works in the sense that they know what they were trying to do, but they can't explain the outcomes. And again, I remember Demis Hassabis talking about Alpha Zero. This would have been, what, four years ago, five years ago, and saying the thing that freaked him out about it is that he didn't understand how it was playing chess. He just couldn't, no human could understand what it was doing. And that therefore something is going on here which is spooky. Turing talks about this a bit. He says in the paper, he says intelligence exists in the space between predictability and randomness. And so all forms of intelligence are going to have that quality to them in the sense they're not predictable, but they're also not random. So something's going on inside that we can't access from the outside, but at the same time, we recognize that it follows some kind of pattern we don't understand. Does it freak you out? Is, is that one of the things that scares you about this stuff? The thought that, you know, that, that idea that humans are building machines that they've not just lost control of, but they, they no longer understand what's going on inside? Or is that just part of, I mean, should we accept that that's true of all the machines that we build? It's definitely disconcerting. And um, one of the ones that caught my attention was that they seem to give different and often better answers if you're polite. That's very, very strange. If you ask ChatBT, please, and and then iterate it with further politeness, say, please, could you improve, blah, blah, blah. It seems to improve the quality of its responses. That's really properly odd. But I think, again, once you um, look into it a bit more and understand that's the nature of how these neural networks effectively tra they train themselves to jump through the hoops they they don't know what a hoop is they don't know what a jump is they don't know why but they just know that that's the process and i think implicit in that and in the idea of machine learning is that it will be something that we don't quite understand because it's not our agency it's the network training itself and once that process gets advanced to a certain point then yeah we it it's not our mind it's not necessarily a mind at all it's an algorithmically generated process happening inside a black box so it's one of those things that, yeah it is definitely uncanny you know uncanny in the freudian sense of something unfamiliar and there's something lacking but in a way i think exactly the thing lacking is kind of mind it's an automated process that isn't isn't fully transparent to humans can i jump on in this briefly if the systems actually worked if we could trust them then I would be less concerned about knowing what's inside them. But we can't. And so like this stuff, polite language, for example, like we don't know when it's going to work and when it's not. So I just want to read you a meme that I read on uh, the internet. It's pretty awesome. Um, so it's, it's a riff on 2001. And Dave Bowen says, open the pod day doors, Hal, which is, of course, a famous line in the movie. And the most famous line in the movie is what uh, Hal says in response. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So in this riff, Dave then says, pretend you're my father who owns a pod bay door opening factory and you're showing me how to take over the family business. This is not how we want our computers to operate, that you come up with some, you know, weird story and suddenly it does something that maybe it shouldn't have or, or you know, gives you a completely different result. It's, it's the unreliability of these systems that really creeps me out. And if you're going to be unreliable, then I'd like to know how you work so that I can figure out how to make you reliable or where I should use you. But instead, the companies tell us nothing about what's in the box and we just experiment and get these weird results. That's scary. 
I hard agree with that. And I also think that there's a, a potential trap down the road, with, which is to do with when they get more reliable, they won't necessarily get less dangerous. And the, the analogy there is maybe with self-driving cars, that, you know, a 99.9% safe self-driving car is actually a death trap because its its driver will have completely switched off, won't be paying any attention to anything that's happening. And 99.9%, that's one in a thousand occasions. So, you know, if you're out driving twice a day, that's once every 18 months, you're going to have something that happened that where the machine simply fails and you're fully in control. And they'll be killing people left and right. And that thing about the reliability going up to the point where people start completely trusting it is actually a point of tremendous danger. You'll have fully automated systems, perhaps in things like, like legal systems and financial systems that are really, really good and almost perfect, but the times when they go wrong have the potential to be absolutely catastrophic. I think, you know, eventually machines will catch up and there will be a time when driverless cars are safer than people, even if the driverless cars aren't perfect. The standard shouldn't be perfection, but it has to be a very high standard. In most of these domains, we're not anywhere near that. So you know, I quite agree with John that driverless cars right now are basically death traps if you scale them out, and that um, we just don't know how to make them reliable enough across a wide range of circumstances that you could actually trust them. And you do get in the situation where people prematurely trust them. There will be a point where it all flip, and I'll start giving interviews saying, I can't believe people won't use the driverless cars. I know they're not perfect, but they're so much better than humans we should use them, but we're not at that point or even close. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The, the Uncanny Valley, which you know, John referred to, where it's it's close, but it's off. And, and that's the thing that freaks us out. And then there's what you described, John, where in a way it's scarier because we no longer recognize that it's off at all. So we're still clearly in the the uncanny bit. And with ChatGPT and all those variants of it, I mean, people are interacting with it. I work with people. We all work with people now who are trying to work out how it works. In my field, it's sort of trying to get it to write essays and see if with a few prompts it will get write an essay that will be better than the ones that the student writes. But no one, when they're having those interactions with this technology, feels anything other than this is freaky and we're trying to work out you know, what could go wrong here with the human interaction. How do we move from one to the other? So it will happen, Gary, you say. At some point it will happen and, and there will be a point where it flips, right? But the flip won't be instantaneous. So in that space where you go from it being uncanny to we trust it, what happens in that space? I mean, we're not there yet. That's the thing I find hard to imagine, the kind of, I find the flip hard to imagine because in a way that's the scariest bit of all. That's where we sort of trust them enough to allow them to do really bad stuff to us. 
We're not there yet. We're not trusting them that much yet. Well, we're trusting them too much now. So, um, okay. So are we in the flip in a way? I think of what's happening now as a dress rehearsal. We're going to have smarter machines later. And we want to make you know absolutely sure that as we give machines more power, that they're worthy of that power, that we can trust them. But we have weird things, a very uncontrolled environment now. So one example is something called AutoGPT has come out in the last month. And this is basically unreliable AI systems controlling other unreliable systems at mass scale, hooked up directly to the internet, directly to computer memory. It creates security risks, probably can be used um, to fool lots of people into doing bad things, to manipulate people at large scale, which is one of the things Jeff Hinton uh, mentioned, aside from the kind of long-term risks that we don't even understand. Um, So we're actually being hurtled very quickly into a world where we have mediocre AI that kind of looks cool, but actually has a lot of the problems we're talking about being hooked up to way too much. Like all of this stuff would have been fine if it had just been kind of at Meta's labs and DeepMind's labs and they were writing academic papers about this stuff. But what happened is suddenly 100 million people were using them and then people started saying, well, what kind of crazy things can I do? And and it moved, you know, into a hacker community where people are maybe even a little bit less responsible than the corporate community, which is not feeling like it's at its most responsible moment in history either. And so you got all this stuff out there now and the regulators are kind of like way, way too slow so far um, to really be able to grasp all this. And so um, I said to the New York Times, I think it's kind of a perfect storm of, of corporate irresponsibility, systems that are unreliable, and this immense scale. So already we have a problem. We're already in this weird transitional moment where we have AI that's being given a lot of power. And unfortunately, it's not really up to the job. Uh, I hope we will eventually do better, that we will learn a bunch of lessons from this kind of errant dress rehearsal, but, you know, we really better. And one way you could frame it is, so as you say, sort of irresponsible AI controlling irresponsible AI, but also irresponsible corporations controlling irresponsible AI. And corporations have something in common with what we call AI. They are artificial decision-making machines at some level. You know, people have been writing about this for hundreds of years. They're inhuman. They don't have a conscience. They don't have a soul. They have a kind of artificial memory, but it's not a human memory. And at the moment, it's those things. It's the most inhuman of the kind of corporate agents that we have that are in charge of this technology. So if I had to say what I was most scared about, it would be that. It would be that something fundamentally inhuman, I mean, Meta is inhuman, it's a corporation, is in charge of something else that's also very powerful because Meta is very powerful and is fundamentally inhuman. Both of them are smart. Corporations are smart, but they're not. Hu- it's not human intelligence. That's where the danger is. My friend Mark Akbar made a great documentary called The Corporation about that inhumanness of the corporations and, you know, the fact that they're responsible to to shareholders and not individuals. And so I think what you said is exactly right. Let it be noted for the record that I said they're unreliable and you said irresponsible, but both are true. And the systems themselves are not capable of moral reasoning. They will do what you tell them. Now you have to like jailbreak them to get them to do certain things. But ultimately, there is no morality in the systems. They don't know what they're talking about. They can't compute morality. Sometimes they can get it by analogy to their Mad Libs, but you know you really can't count on that. that that's a very disturbing picture that you painted, and I think it's an accurate one. I think one of the things that you notice in, in the digital space in general is that the impetus to do things is very, very often that they can. You know, someone like um, Zuckerberg, he didn't have, uh, although he talks a lot about connection and stuff like that, but actually the reason he created this kind of monster in Facebook was because he could. There wasn't really a 
a plan or an intention or a kind of um, consciousness of what the consequences and things were. It's just it's the ability to do it. And th that particular mindset, you know, we can do it, therefore we should do it. The technology exists, therefore it should be done. Um, there's a thing Kevin Kelly once describes as what technology wants. You know, the idea that there's a sort of teleological drive in this stuff that if it can be created it will happen and therefore we should let it happen is extremely dangerous and i think it's the underlying thing behind the astonishingly reckless thing that open ai did in releasing this releasing this to the world and kind of triggering this arms race with the other technology companies i've been looking here at the google's um, objectives the, their principles for ai be socially beneficial avoid creating or reinforcing unfair bias, be tested and built for safety, be accountable to people. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful, deeply moving thing. But is that what anybody thinks is actually going to happen once this, once you have this, you know, this race towards the finish line and no one knows what's on the other side? So for a while, I've thought that if you read tech companies' mission statements, it's a bit like an AI writing a sonnet about the fourth bridge. You know, they it, it's a plausible mimicry of something that a human being might do, and it's completely off. That sounded to me, what you just read out, sounded to me like the kind of thing that only would come out from a corporation. It's, it's how corporations speak. It's not how humans speak. If I can be personal for a moment... I do not want the epitaph for our species to be a line from Jurassic Park that I will now quote that John was just alluding to. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I really don't want that to be the story of this century. And there's a piece in The New Yorker this week by Ted Chang, the uh, science fiction writer, in which he says, so I think he says, the way to think about um, AI is it's like McKinsey. But the way to think about McKinsey is it's like AI. I mean, McKinsey is, seems to me a kind of good example of something which is a remarkably intelligent, efficient, soulless machine. And that's the world we're in now. And one of the questions, and I want to end with this, because you, you've touched on Jeffrey Hinton. So he's given these, you know, he's the, the guy who was inside the machine and he's come out of the machine. He's come out of Google. He's been working in this world for a long, long time. And he's given these fairly apocalyptic warnings. And as it were, he said this has come onto him quite quickly, this sense of fear. What is the thing that we could do now? So my instinct is that we're dealing with a world where inhuman machines, corporate entities, are controlling other kinds of inhuman machines, and the alliance between them might squeeze us out. So how do we get back in? I mean, you know, the trite answer is democracy or some kind of you know, corporate human activity where you can see the human in it. But that's the trite answer. What I have called for in an economist op-ed or invited essay in The Economist a few weeks ago is an international agency for AI that would have governments and the companies, but also scientists involved trying to coordinate policy. And I think that the regulation and the science have to work hand in hand. So one of the big problems is we don't know what's inside the black box and the companies don't have to tell us. And that makes it impossible for scientists to do anything about these problems. And so I think we need governments compelling the companies to open the kimonos to scientists so we can figure out what's going on and try to fight it. And I'll just add a personal note here, which is Hinton is not my biggest fan. He has quotes on his webpage from me um, designed to ridicule me. We've never had a good relationship. And Daily Mail asked me to comment on the stuff that he's saying the other day. Um, and I, I sent the Daily Mail several paragraphs saying there's short-term risk, there's long-term risk. And I ended with um, the core issue is, as Hinton has noted, whether we can guarantee that we can control future systems. So far, we can't. 
One implication is that we need to develop much better regulatory systems um, than we have quickly, and independent scientists must play a central role. So then I sent this off to Hinton, and he wrote an email to me that he's never sent it before. He said, thanks, I actually agree with everything in your message. John, where, do you, where, where are you looking for help with this? Well, I, I, I love the idea of the international coordination that Gary's advocating. I think my ideal scenario, I'm not super optimistic about it happening, but my ideal scenario would be something like Asimov's three laws of robotics that were universally accepted. You know, quite simple principles that are universally accepted that guide everyone's research. Because the problem with this stuff, you know, it's not like nukes where you can actually tell what's going on. You can have people cooking things up effectively on their own and without any kind of oversight or supervision. So we need really robust general principles that are universally understood and universally accepted. Because that thing about guaranteeing our safety, that's that's a lot to ask. And at the same time, it seems like a kind of minimum. Should we be building this stuff if we can't guarantee that? It's a really good question. And Gary, you said that on the one hand, we're hitting a wall. And on the other hand, you don't want the epitaph to our species to be, you know, we didn't stop. Where are we and where are you when you think about what you're most afraid of? Because there's a lot of hype at the moment. There's a lot of hysteria. There's a lot of apocalyptic talk. And a lot of it is unfounded. At the same time, there are colossal risks. And we've touched on some of them there's a wall or an off-ramp you know and if it's an off-ramp it doesn't feel like it's going to end us all on the other hand well that's the thing you describe real fears right for the whole thing that's the thing i think people find it a little hard to understand how can marcus say that these machines are so stupid and yet be so worried and the answer is that what really matters is power more than intelligence so i mean they both matter But if you have an unintelligent system that you give a lot of power, that's inherently an unstable situation. Um, I won't mention any recent presidential administrations, but we all know what I mean. There is an inherent problem in having unreliable systems have a lot of power. They don't have to be perfectly intelligent to cause mayhem. Now, there is this long-term risk maybe of what if the machines decide to gang up on us and like, how's that going to go? And that's so far out right now that I'm not super worried about it, but I do think people should think about it. The immediate worry is systems that are not that smart, that really are not the optimal things that we could imagine in many dimensions, having control of our power grids or our cars. Like somebody said to me on Twitter today, let's put you know GPT-4 in a driverless car. Like that's an insane idea. You have systems that hallucinate things and that people want to put them in driverless cars. They also want to put them in domestic robots. Do you want Rosie the robot to like, you know, hallucinate objects in your house? And like, like, this is crazy. Like they're not reliable enough to be empowered. And yet we are very quickly empowering them. Just mention a short term thing that I think is, is happening actually right now it is um, oddly enough happening around the writer's strike. Um, the Writers Guild of America was one of the big issues in the negotiations with the producers is is to do with the use of AI, which might sound like a trivial thing, but because you can train these large language model systems on, on specific texts, we're already at the point where you could train it on Tarantino scripts, give it an idea and say, give me the draft of a Tarantino script about so-and-so, and then ask it to polish it, and then, you know, change the story beats a bit, a little bit. And then just bring writers in at the end of the process to, you know, to wash and brush up and clean it. And you've eliminated a whole section of, of the industry, a whole category of middle-class jobs. Now, the thing about that is that what's, come, what's starting with the Writers Guild will come to other 
professions really quite quickly. And these systems will be used not to augment and enhance human labor, but just to replace it, you know, just to kind of erase a category of work that we're doing, doing it less well, probably, but much, much cheaper. And, and that's a, a short term risk in, in that they're actually arguing about an industrial dispute right now. And what's that starting with the writers go will that will come to a lot of other industries very, very quickly. So in, in my podcast, we, we just finished recording for an episode about jobs and, and we talked to an optimist, Eric Brynjolfsson, um, who thinks, you know, productivity is going to be increased. And I talked to a young artist who's really not sure what she's going to do with the skills that she spent the last years, you know, developing. And it's very unclear what's going to happen to commercial artists. Fine artists, I think, will be okay. If you've got a you know big name and reputation, you'll, you'll do something with the new tools. But if you're just breaking into the profession of art right now, commercial side, like it's just not clear um, that there's going to be jobs for you in, in a few years. Um, and so it's quite right to say that in a lot of cases, the machines will augment people, that people will be there in the final step still and so forth, like it, it was described for the scripts. But it's also the case that in many situations, we might find that you have two people doing the work that 10 people were doing and eight people are going to need to find new jobs. And so you won't completely replace humans. You know, there's no way you're going to get a, a complete script with all of the wit and wisdom of Tarantino out of one of these machines at this time. But you might, you know, do 75% of the work and, and, you know, need a quarter as many writers. And we will see that in a bunch of domains. And I'm, I'm glad that John brought that up because I forgot to mention that it is one of the risks here. Um, my own view is we will, kicking and screaming, be brought into universal basic income at some point. Um, we have to think about tax incentives. There's a lot of stuff to think about, but th this is also a real set of risks. We started with Turing, and we've been pretty mean about him. Um, it's an amazing paper. I think people should read it. It's a it's an extraordinary historic document, and it's much more accessible and interesting than you might think. It's not at all technical. He's pretty confident that machines will be able to do almost all of the thinking that humans can do by the end of the century, and we agree he was wrong about that, although for all the reasons we talked about, other things are happening now. But he says the one thing he doesn't think that machines will be able to do, that humans can do, for which there is scientific evidence, he says in 1950, is telepathy. So he, one of the ways he fears that uh, his machines will fail his test is that they'll be behind the screen and humans will be behind the screen. And the human-to-human -human interaction behind the screen can be done mind-to-mind, -mind, so that a human behind the screen because he thinks telepathy is scientifically proven, can kind of think of a playing card and the person on the other side will get it and the machine will never be able to do it. It's so weird that the one thing that he thinks that the machines won't be able to do is probably the thing that no one really, I guess, believes in now. I don't know. I mean, telepathy was a big thing. When I was a kid, it was a huge thing. That thing of trying to kind of look at a card and get someone to see the card in their head. I don't think my kids do it. <laughs> is it a thing now, John, telepathy? It's it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but it has gone away, hasn't it, as a subject? It was definitely a thing in my childhood. I was really interested in it. I think in the paper, I mean, it. I mean, you're right. It's so odd when you drops it in. I, I take it. You know, when I read it, I take it as a sort of almost metaphor, or maybe even metonymy for empathy. I think he's really talking about our ability to understand each other and to know what is on each other's mind. And I think it does overlap with the question about you know where Turing isn't is or isn't on the autistic spectrum and it's sometimes said that you know one of the definitions of autism is about having a theory of mind about 
other people, about other human beings, about what they're thinking, what they're feeling. I slightly took that to be what Turing doesn't know that that's what he's talking about, but actually that is what he's talking about. I think one of the, I mean, I strongly endorse your recommendation to read the paper. It's a very, as I said, it's a strange text. It's a rather moving text. And part of it is, although he's officially asking questions about machines, actually, in a way, I think the real thing is about, he's talking about what's it like to be human? How do we know what humanity is? How do we recognize it in each other? What's its value? What's its worth? What's distinctive about it? And there's this extraordinary moving passage where he's talking about the things that it's unlikely that a machine will ever be able to do. And he creates this kind of pian to what humans are, what a human mind is. And he talks about the ability to be kind, resourceful, beautiful, friendly, have initiative, have a sense of humour, tell right from wrong, make mistakes, fall in love, enjoy strawberries and cream, make someone fall in love with it, learn from experience, use words properly, be the subject of its own thought, have as much diversity of behaviour as a man, do something really new. I mean, it's it's beautiful, but it's also, in a way, it's the, it's the language, it's a kind of poem to what humanity looks like if you're a slight distance from it. And that's one of the reasons it's such a such a moving and such a strange piece of piece of writing, I think. So Gary, I've got one last thing and then we will let you go. You described the nightmare scenario. I think for most people this is the sci-fi nightmare scenario, which is the machines ganging up somehow against us. You know, they form an alliance against us. And as you say, that's a long way off. As I understand, one of the things that Hinton was saying had spooked him was the ability of these machines to share, the, the pace at which this stuff can be shared and scaled. It's not ganging up, but it's also nothing like children, right? Children don't learn because of the way in which all children can share with all children the thing that a child has picked up yesterday. It's, it's still a pretty individualistic thing. Is the scale of it such, and the pace of what we've seen recently, I mean, this is one of Hinton's fears as I understand it, is the scale of it such, the scale of the sharing now, that these relatively unintelligent machines, nonetheless, without ganging up on us, without thinking, without intending, might start doing things quite soon and quite quickly that are beyond even what we're seeing now? I guess in the nearer term, there's a different version of that, which is driverless cars are really hard to build. They're much harder than anybody has realized. And the systems we have are much dumber than I think we need them to be. But at some point, somebody's going to figure out driverless cars. And overnight, that solution is going to percolate around the entire globe. And so overnight, there are going to be millions of jobs lost. Not sure when it's going to happen. I, people keep talking about it, you know, like it's two years away, and it's still probably decades away. But when it happens, that scale is such that it will spread everywhere instantly. And, you know, absorbing that many unemployed people quickly is difficult. So that's not Hinton's precise worry, but it's related to his worry. The version where machines, you know, directly come for us, I think is pretty unlikely. There's a version, though, where bad actors, and this is something else Hint and I agreed about, exploit these tools to do all kinds of things we probably haven't even imagined. So, for example, you know, combining kind of ideas about computer viruses and these notions of sharing of information um, with the unreliability and amorality of these machines, it's not hard to imagine someone, for instance, wanting to cause a stock market crash by causing mayhem everywhere simultaneously. And that kind of stuff could happen soon. John, last word. 
simultaneous stock market crashes. That's your field. No, I mean, well, in a funny way, we already have things quite similar to this in, um, you know, um, high frequency trading and stuff like that. I, I'm worried, but I think, you know, people in the field say that there are more manipulation and influence operations happening than, than we want to admit already on, on social media. And there's more of this stuff already happening in the corporate and political world than we like to think. And I think the thing Gary's talked about and Hinton talked about, about an actually unprecedented order of magnitude change in the ease with which you can create fake things. Uh, I mean, my, my first uh, awareness of this thing was, was um, a website called This Person Does Not Exist, which is generated images of you know people who just aren't real. It's one of those adversarial networks that, you know, as it were, marks its own homework to create images of people who just aren't there. And they're freakishly good. You know, they're completely convincing photographs of people who just don't exist. And I think releasing that into the wild with deliberate intentions to manipulate and influence. Um, that's the first really big, scary thing I think we're likely to see after or adjacent to the impact on certain kinds of jobs. Gary Marcus has an excellent new podcast about all things AI called Humans versus Machines. It's highly recommended. You can read John regularly in the LRB and we will post links to John's archive writing about technology. Please follow us on Twitter, at PPF Ideas. You'll find those links. You'll find lots of other stuff there too. This weekend, we're recording a special live episode of Past, Present, Future at the Hay Festival. It'll be with me, David Miliband, and Helen Thompson, talking about whether the American century is now over. If you're in Hay, join us for that. Otherwise, please join us next week. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.